Welcome to Casting Hope, a sermon podcast of Hope Presbyterian Church in Columbus, Ohio. My name is Joe Hack, lead pastor at Hope, and we are so glad you're listening in wherever you are. In this moment of social distancing, we hope that our audio and streaming resources meet you where you are at and help you stay connected to God and to His promises. We are continuing our summer series on the cross of Christ, and for the last few months of the summer, we have been exploring how the cross saves us, but starting last week, we began to ask, how does this same cross that saves us shape us? The theological word for this is cruciform. From the words crucifix and formation. Cruciform. So last week, we saw that Jesus expects his followers will not lead and will not live like the rest of the world does as a race to the top, but instead, his followers will live and lead as Jesus, like a race to the bottom. Jesus came not to be served, but to serve. And those he served, that's you and me, those he served, in his life and in his death, his disciples are now freed up to do the same. Jesus' people are cruciform people. To borrow an idea from the late Christian philosopher and writer Dallas Willard, that is a divine conspiracy. That the eternal Lord of all would come to us, first of all, And then that he would come to us not to be served. Let that sink in. As one writer puts it, the uncreated Lord of all came to us. And not only that, came not to be served, but to serve, to wash feet, to die on a cross. Which in turn shapes his people into glad servants of others. That's the conspiracy. That's the quiet, humble, Spirit-empowered, cross-shaped mission of the church. And so it's no surprise that the Apostle Paul picks up this truth, this cruciform, cross-shaping truth from Jesus, and not only embodies it, but in fact teaches it to the early church. And one of those early churches is the ancient church in the city of Philippi. So when you read Paul's letter to the Philippians, a letter to the Philippians, when you read this letter then you get the sense that they were having a hard time. Their church was up against a lot. They were up against a lot of suffering and a lot of hardship. But what is astonishing to me is how Paul pastors them through this hardship. He doesn't offer them strategies. He doesn't offer them pat answers. He doesn't offer them programs. He doesn't scold them. What does he do? Well, he tells them to embrace the cruciform way of life in Jesus. And I want to explore that. Why did he do that? And why might we be learning that as well? Well, I'll read. You can follow along. This is God's Word. It's verse 1, chapter 2 of the book of Philippians. So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, 
but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of of God the Father. Lord, with the words of my mouth and with the meditation of all of our hearts here this morning, be pleasing and acceptable to you, our rock and redeemer. Holy Spirit, open the eyes of all of our hearts so that through the very word that you inspired and superintended, we would see Jesus and that his beauty would transform us. And it's in his name we ask this. Okay, well, if you ever catch me cleaning my car with excessive attention to detail, you have permission to come up to me and ask, Joe, how are you doing in life? (laughs) How are things going? Why? Because whenever I'm afraid, whenever I feel threats looming, I tend to get very controlling in small, insignificant areas of my life. Can I get an amen? Right. Like my car. Here's the thing. I want the illusion of control. And so whenever the world feels out of control, notice I said feels out of control, because the truth is that the world is always out of my control, but there are circumstances where I experience that truth more truly, and when I do, my temptation is to carve out a little kingdom and to sit on a little throne. I think we all do this in various ways. This is human nature east of Eden. We build pretend kingdoms because life is hard and life is threatening. Lynn Kohick, she's a New Testament scholar and her work on Paul and her work on Philippians uh, has really helped me prepare for this message. And She makes an observation that I have been chewing on for a while here. She writes, quote, that Paul the Apostle is not unaware that in the face of adversity, fear and selfishness tend to rule conduct. In other words, hard times can be fertile soil for selfish behaviors to take root. Now, I want to say this, and I'll say it again later, but an appropriate godly concern for our interests, for our safety, can slowly grow into an inappropriate, 
ungodly concern for only our interests. I recently read a piece from a thoughtful reader of culture, and he made the prediction that in this kind of, sort of, post-pandemic place that we're in right now, whatever we want to call this, most adults, he predicted, will start behaving like teenagers. And I was a teenager, so that's no dig on a teenager. But his point is that when we are sort of in this space, much of our behavior will not be from the prefrontal cortex, but maybe from the stem of our brain. The other day, I was sitting in my car at a red light. And then out of nowhere, I heard these screeching car tires. And then in my rearview mirror, I saw this white SUV skidding and peeling towards the back of my car. And my heart started to race. In fact, it stopped doing anything. <laughs> it felt like everything just stopped as I saw this car slow motion running towards me. And then it suddenly swerved. It didn't hit my car. That's good news. That's a relief. But then they continued to swerve into this parking lot that we were parked next to and sort of just continued on and blasted through this parking lot and ran into another street. Continued on. It was reckless driving at its worst. Now that's just one driver who was only thinking of themselves. But can you imagine if the whole road was full of drivers like that? If the whole road, if even the whole highway was full of drivers that were only concerned for themselves and where they had to be at that very moment. And they would start to drive recklessly. And the next thing you know, there is a pileup on the highway. Well, the ancient, the, the Apostle Paul is an ancient man, and he's writing to an ancient church, but their hearts are made of the same stuff as our hearts. And if we glance at verses 27 to 29, in the verses before us, in chapter 1, we see the things that they must have been going through. So Paul says in verse 28, don't be frightened. In verse 29, Paul implies that they were suffering. And in verse 30, they were apparently engaged in some kind of conflict. But notice what Paul is concerned about, not alleviating their suffering. No, he is concerned about the potential for selfishness. And that ought to make us pause. Again, as Lynn Kohik observed, Paul knew that hard times is fertile soil for reckless driving. Hard times is fertile soil for reckless driving to indeed take root. Hard times is fertile soil for selfish living. Now again, I want to say this very clearly. Healthy self-concern is good. Godly self-care is important. Self-protection against abuse of all kinds is godly. Paul says in verse 4, if you take a look, to not only look after your own concerns, implying a healthy self-concern. Paul doesn't advocate for a worm theology, as it's been called, where spiritual maturity is measured by our capacity for self-hatred. Where spiritual maturity is sort of measured by a sense of self that has no dignity as image bearers of God or has no boundaries at all. But when times are hard, Paul knew as a pastor that people can start to only think of themselves. And that's the battle that the Philippians were in. 
And he knew, Paul knew, that this could in turn dissolve their community. Create a pileup. Which in turn could ruin the church's witness to the watching world. And as Leslie Newman teaches, the church community, our community, hope, is the best apologetic for the good news of Jesus. In fact, the church is designed to be the apologetic for the gospel that saves us. And so a church that is divided and a church that is toxic is not only confusing to a watching world, but it tells a lie about the gospel we're called to embody. And that is of utmost concern for the Apostle Paul. And that's what the church in Philippi was in danger of. And to get a sense of this, all we have to do is look at Paul's encouragements in this section of Scripture. And when we do that, we see three dangers the Philippian church was encountering. The first would be division, and the second would be competition, and the third we could say is intimidation. So Paul says in verse 2, Be of the same mind. Have the same love. Be in full accord and of one mind. Why is Paul saying this? Because they were in danger of the opposite division. And then Paul says in verse 3, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but humbly count others as more significant. Look to others' interests. And then if you go up a bit to verse 27 of chapter 1, Paul says to strive side by side. In other words, Paul is encouraging them to do this. Why? Because they are in danger of the opposite. Competition. And then if you look at verses 27 and 28 of chapter 1, Paul says to stand firm. And then later, to not be frightened. They were in danger of living in constant intimidation. Which usually creates some kind of fight, flight response. And Paul says instead, stand firm, don't grumble. Division, competition, intimidation. The unholy trinity of unhealthy community. And it's all rooted in self-concern. An unhealthy self-concern. Selfishness. And so what would make Paul rejoice in verse 2? Make my joy complete, he says. What would make Paul rejoice is the active cultivation of a community that is exactly the opposite. To put it bluntly, a community that is not selfish. Community that is not selfish will proclaim the very gospel that saved us. We could call this community a cruciform community. And we could be on good grounds if we did so. Why? Because Paul explicitly links their community to an ancient church psalm, a hymn about the cruciform Christ, the Lord of who came not to be served, but to serve. So what is a cruciform community? Well, according to this passage, it's at least two things, and I'm going to borrow some phrases I've heard applied to the kingdom of God to help us wrap our minds around a cruciform community. It is both upside down 
and inside out. What do I mean? Well, let's take a look. A cruciform community is upside down. It's non-conformist. It's upside down through the fundamental pattern of the world. In Acts 17, 6, folks in the ancient city of Thessalonica accused the earliest Christians of turning the world upside down. That's a direct quote from the book of Acts. The earliest Christians turned the world upside down. Why? Well, they say it. Because they're following the Lord Jesus, not Caesar. What that means is that the community of Jesus oftentimes overlaps with the world in significant ways, and we call that common grace. But there are other things that are completely upside down from the way of the world. And our cruciform community is one of those things. Two examples that Paul will tell us. The first is this, when the world seeks honor, we give We see this in verses 3 and 4. Paul says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. And that word conceit is literally empty glory. Do nothing out of empty glory. Self-glory. Which Paul calls empty. But instead, in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. And let each of you look not only to his own interests, but to the interests of others. These days, I think we might read these two verses and be like, cool, don't be a jerk. You know, be kind. What's upside down about that? <laughs> well, number one, uh, that isn't really what Paul is saying. You know, he's saying something a little bit more radical. Number two, that hot take takes for granted that humility is a virtue. In Paul's day, Humility was not a virtue. Lynn Coeck says the word humility landed on the ancient mind like the word humiliation lands on ours. She points out that this was an honor-shame culture. And if kindness and if humility have any purchase today in our neighborhoods, it's because we've been steeping in upside-down passages like this for millennia. That's the first thing. But the second thing is this, that Paul is saying something, I think, much more challenging and profound than don't be a jerk. He's saying, actively give honor to others. And to the same degree that you look after your own interests, expand that to include everyone else. This was upside down in their cultural moment, and it's upside down in our cultural moment. We seek to give honor to others. We do not seek honor for ourselves. That's upside down. The second, when the world seeks glory, we give glory. Instead of seeking glory for ourselves, which Paul calls empty glory, we pour out our glory impulse on the only one worthy of it, Jesus. So verse 9, Therefore God has highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name, Jesus, 
So that at the, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. In heaven and on earth and under the earth, this is everywhere. And every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So in a world that seeks self-glory, Jesus' people give glory. And we give glory to Jesus. I think left to ourselves, we will seek glory and honor for ourselves. It's like a screensaver on a computer. If you just stop touching the mouse pad, the screensaver pops up. And I think by nature, all of us seek glory. All of us seek honor. Even if it is disguised. So even in ministry, I've shared before that when my 20-year-old self felt called to ministry, I envisioned pastoral ministry in the future. And the images that captured my young heart were all things that honestly gave me honor and me glory. Oh yeah, I was doing it for the glory of Jesus and for the glory of and for the honor of the Lord. But the images that captured me were the ones that honestly gave me glory and honor. That's how deeply embedded our desire for glory can be. We can even seek glory in this. We can seek glory, in other words, when serving. Even when we sign up to serve others, too often I think we can do it to receive recognition in return. To become the kind of person who serves. You know, we want to be the kind of person who serves. In a culture where kindness and service have purchase, in a culture where kindness and service are values, we can actually start to serve others in order to climb. Isn't that amazing? Isn't the human heart amazing? We can actually serve others to climb. Some kind of ladder of honor. But the cross of Jesus turns out upside down, friends. We don't seek glory or honor for ourselves at all. We give it away. Cruciform communities, upside down. It's also inside out. What this means is that if our community, hope, is to be truly upside down, this revolution must begin in our hearts for it to be lasting and real. A cruciform community is upside down, yes, but it is also, and it must be, inside out. The good news is that God does this for us, and even in this passage, He gives us seven gifts that when we receive them, they will change our hearts such that we become grateful, such that we actually begin to want to give honor to others and glory to the Lord. Glad hearts. Glad hearts are what differentiates the Christianity from all other paths of life. Glad hearts. Our obedience is not to earn or to prove anything. Our obedience, even our service, is out of a glad response to God's gifts. Have you ever received help from somebody and you wanted to give them a thank you gift? That wasn't part of the agreement. It's not like they said, I'm going to help you out here. 
but you better give me a gift later. <laughs> that never happened. But because you received the help, and because it was so, so good, and so beautiful, you longed to say something in return, or to do something in return. You didn't need to. It wasn't part of the arrangement. But you wanted to. That's Christian obedience. You are changed from the inside out by, one thing, beauty. And so what are these seven beautiful gifts? What are these things that can change us from the inside out? Well, Paul unpacks them, starting in verse 1. First, we have the encouragement of Jesus. And I don't know, I just want to say this. I don't know, one of these, I want you, there's seven of these. That's a lot. But I guess it's my prayer that one of these lands today. At least one of these, you say, thank you, Jesus. And first that we are given is the encouragement of Jesus. Have you ever had a loving coach if you played a sport? Or, or a loving parent who encouraged you from the sidelines? Shouting your name, not out of shame. Shouting your name, not out of disappointment. Shouting your name, not out of anger. But shouting your name out of glad-hearted joy. Encouraging you. That is Jesus to you. Paul says, if you have any encouragement in Jesus. Implying that you do, by the way. Number two, we have comfort from the Father. If any comfort from His love, verse 1. So God is not just Almighty, but He is also a loving Father. He dotes on us like any earthly father should. He comforts us like any earthly father should. He loves us. Number three, we have the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. Paul says we have participation, or the word here is fellowship with the Spirit. So that means we're not just believers, but we are participants in the true God. In other words, we have relationship with the triune God by the Holy Spirit. If there is any participation in the Spirit, Paul says, implying of course that there is. And so, so far we have three things. We have Encouragement from Jesus, we have love from God the Father, and we have participation in the Holy Spirit. We have relationship with God by the Holy Spirit. Number four, we have mercy from God. It says, if any tenderness and compassion, those words could be translated affection and mercy. Tenderness and compassion, affection and mercy. God is affectionate toward you. As Kelly Kapich puts it, you aren't just loved by God, you are liked by God. If there is any tenderness, if there is any affection for you. And even in our rebellion, and even in our failures to be tender back, even in our failures to be loving back, even in our doubts that He is good, in all of that, what does He do? He extends mercy. 
compassion that our rebellion does not deserve. And this is possible because of what Paul says about Jesus in verse 8, by the way. Jesus was obedient in our place, and his obedience led him to the cross, where he endured the curse of sin for us. So that God can be merciful in our rebellion. He can be tender-hearted towards us. Scholars ask why in this hymn about Jesus there is an emphasis on the cross. Why does Paul say, even the cross, that Jesus humbled himself even to the cross? It's because the cross is the place where God's mercy, his tenderness, and his justice are in full display. And it's proof that Jesus came exactly to rescue you. And exactly, exactly to bring you into the life of the triune God. And when we see that, we understand that God can truthfully say to all of you who are in Christ, I am affectionate and merciful toward you, even in, especially in your sin. That is the cross of Jesus. The mercy of God. Number five, the vindication of God is on display in this passage. So Paul shows us that in the end, Jesus was vindicated by the Father. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. This is an ascension term where, where Paul sings about the ascension of Jesus, where God vindicates Jesus. Some scholars call this point in the hymn, God's yes to Jesus' cruciform life. In other words, yes, this is exactly what Jesus to do. And yes, this exactly captures the heart of God. For God so loved the world that he would. What's the word? He gave. The very heart of God is giving. And when Jesus comes to us, and comes to us not to be served, but to serve, even on a cross, God says yes. That is my heart. And he vindicates Jesus. And this vindication means that we too would hear God's yes in the end. Like the Philippians, when we're expressing, experiencing rather a hard time and we stay steadfast in the Lord, we will hear his yes in the end. Vindication. Number six, our union with Jesus. So Paul, in verse five, Paul says, have, he says, have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus. So this phrase, in Christ Jesus, is one of Paul's favorite phrases. It means here that the cross-shaped life that is modeled by Jesus, exemplified even by Jesus, is already ours. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. In other words, because you are united to this cruciform Jesus, therefore, this cruciform life is not something you do to prove yourself to God. It's something that is already there for you to do and to live. We are united to Jesus, which means the shape of his life is the shape of our life. And finally, the salvation of God We've received the salvation of God. The whole point of this hymn, verses 6 through 11, it will be lost on us. 
until we realize that Jesus did not pursue this life of service for us to emulate merely, but that he pursued this life of service in real time to rescue us. It says here that he did not grasp. In other words, he did not leverage his divine privileges for his own benefit. But for ours, to save us, Jesus served us. That's our rescue story. And so I say, only until we see that this hymn is written about Jesus serving his people, only when that happens will his people be released to be servants in this hymn. Sometimes it's tempting to approach this hymn as sort of a, see what Jesus did, now you go do, and like, go do likewise. And that's all we say about it. But we're forgetting a very important part. That this life of service from Jesus was not just a model. It was, it's our rescue story. Jesus did this for us. We receive this. We benefit from this. And that alone compels us to serve. These seven things are what I would call gospel givens. They are gifts. They're given to us. And they're embedded in this passage. And without them, we would simply have a command from the apostle, do not be selfish. And my sermon would be very short. I'd stand up here and I'd say, hey, y'all, ready? Don't be selfish. And you all would feel guilty for being selfish. And then we sing a song about Jesus and we leave. But gratefully, that's not the gospel. The gospel says, in our selfishness, Jesus served us so that we now with glad hearts can serve others. Amen. With these gospel givens, we have the capacity to actually pursue self-giving without any ulterior motive. Years ago, my dad was feeling awful and without energy. And because he was taking medication, we all assumed, and he did too, that it was just a side effect of, side effect of his medication. But when he met with his doctor, uh, the doctor asked, and I know some doctors out there, you probably do this all the time. The doctor asked, how much water are you drinking? And after a little bit of discussion, they both realized that my dad was like super dehydrated. Wasn't even like drinking barely any water. Turns out his lack of energy had everything to do with his dehydration. And ever since then, ever since he told me that story, I paid attention to how much water I drink in a given day. And it's amazing how much better you feel when you're hydrated. It's amazing. You feel great feel better when we internalize water it helps everything else function and I want to look at these seven gospel givens as water that God has simply given us to drink things that we internalize which in turn enables us to serve others as we were built to do when we try to serve others in our own strength we're basically trying to function without water when we try to serve others in our own strength, we are outside inning it. But when we receive these gifts from God, truly, when we receive them, and that's why my prayer is that you at least, at least one of these things lands on you in a fresh way. Because when that happens, you start inside out again. 
we have a motivation now to sustain costly service. And so let me ask you, how are you contributing to this cruciform community called Hope? I have a few thoughts that might help generate some thoughts. The first I would say is this. Get competitive. Now, what am I saying? Every time I do marriage counseling, I like to talk about this passage. And I urge newlywed couples to see their marriage as a competition to outdo one another in costly service. It doesn't just apply to marriage. It applies to every relationship. If you have a competitive spirit, do you? Wouldn't you have a competitive spirit? Do you love winning board games or hate losing card games? Then I would say this. Instead of enter into the way of the world, which is just like, you know, king of the hill, God's leverage that competitive spirit towards service. Make your life a competition to outdo others by losing. Paul says, the cruciform community is upside down. We give honor. We give glory. Second, let's abolish volunteerism. Now, this is something I learned from Lynn Kohik. She defines volunteerism as a mentality that sort of divides our work, especially our work in church, but anywhere in our life, into two categories. And they're this. Number one, work that we are sort of worthy of, and then work that is kind of beneath us. And she points out that Paul's vision of community is that in Christ, there is absolutely nothing beneath us. And the reason she calls it volunteerism is because too often when we use the word volunteer in our language, when we say, yes, I'll volunteer, we are, maybe maybe not on purpose, but we are almost implicitly saying, this is beneath me, but I will do it anyway. Or in other words, this isn't something that I would normally do. So I will do it because it needs done. And what can start to happen is we can start to actually lose the whole point of this radical upside down cruciform community. What Paul says is when we serve on a ministry team at Hope, we are not stooping. We are simply being in Christ. There's no stooping. We're on level ground in Christ. And that is radical. And the third thing I would say to close this out is pursue beauty. I am struck by the fact that Paul uses a poem, he uses a hymn about Jesus to motivate his church into costly service. Some of your Bible translations, if you're like using this one, you'll notice that the actual verses 6 through 11 are offset, which is oftentimes a cue from the translators that what we're reading is exalted prose or exalted language or even poetry. It signals to us that what we're reading here is something kind of out of the ordinary of the flow of thought. And that's exactly what we see in Philippians. Paul's writing a letter. And as we are, maybe if you're familiar with Paul's letters, they just read like letters. And then all of a sudden you have this thing that we just read about Jesus. And it's poetic. And it, in Greek it sort of has rhyming and it has a cadence to it. It's beautiful. And scholars read it and they're like, this must be an ancient hymn that the church is saying back in the day. And Paul is simply referring to it. Others say, no, Paul himself was a poet. And he wrote it and he wanted to write it because he wanted the hearts of his people to actually see the beauty of Jesus. Why? Because beauty changes our hearts. Now, I don't care if Paul wrote it or if he's just quoting it. The point is, he's using a hymn, he's using a 
song. He's using something beautiful about Jesus to meld our hearts to budge into service and to want to serve. And so I think this is a call to artists and to poets and to songwriters to wield their craft well and to help us see the beauty of Jesus. We need you. We need your gifts. And I'm sorry if the church too often does not acknowledge your gifts. We need your gifts. Hope needs your gifts. We need to see the beauty of Jesus afresh. The cruciform community. Friends, division is not surprising these days. Um, So what if God created a surprising unity within our midst? We're launching in early September as a church into the fall season. What if in this moment of fracture, what if in this moment of distrust, what if in this disorienting stage that I think we're all in with regard to church, what if God built inside of this room and inside of our living rooms a cruciform community that is surprising to the outside so Lord would you make it so Lord would you make it so we ask Lord that by the power of your Holy Spirit this image, this truth this reality of Jesus' downward path to serve those who came to rescue Lord that would mark us shape us as well that we would respond to his service by spirit. Create this life in us by your spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for tuning in. For more information about our church and for more resources like this, visit our website at hopechurchcolumbus.org.